0: Welcome, everyone. I am Bob Wurzelbacher, the Director of the Respect Life Office for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and this is our video podcast series that we call Being Pro-Life. Each month, we'll discuss a different topic in the Respect Life arena. We'll hear personal stories from people deeply affected by that issue. And finally, we'll share ways that you can get involved. This month's topic is palliative care. Let's talk now with this week's guest. Will you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi. My name is Jill Raisin, and I live in Dayton, Ohio.
0: Okay, Jill, let's turn to you. you have a story to share with us?
1: Yes, I do. So my mother has been living with Parkinson's disease for about 20 years. And about a year and a half ago, she started experiencing, well, she went to a memory care specialist, and they recommended that she go on the generic form of Aricept. And she did. And she did pretty good with that for a while, but I would say probably towards the end of the summer, she went on it in February. And by the end of the summer, she started being tired and lethargic and really not being herself. We noticed signs at my parents' 50th wedding anniversary party. And then again, I saw signs at Thanksgiving when I went down to visit. And I had some real concerns about my mom's quality of life. And wondered if it wasn't the medication that was causing it. So, long story short, we decided to take her off the Aricept after discussing amongst my siblings and my dad. Went down in April again to visit, and she was a completely different person. I felt like I had my mom back. But then she came up in May, and it seemed like she had made an exponential slide she was hallucinating, horrible memory, couldn't complete simple tasks. I couldn't leave her by herself, which affected my work.
0: So Jill, at at, at that moment, did you have any idea what was going on there? So she was taken off the medication that seemed to be making things worse, and then she got better for a while, and then nothing else had changed except for the fact that she started, her dementia got worse at that point? Well,
1: right. And and we, we really had no clue what had been going on. I thought it was because we took her off the Aricept. While she was staying with me, I had to take her to urgent care because I, we thought she had a urinary tract infection. Well, here's, here's another check mark to what was really going on. She had an obstructed bowel. And about a month after she left me, my dad had to take her to the emergency room and she had emergency surgery for an obstructed bowel. And the surgeon actually said it was the worst case she had ever seen. My mom had complained probably for well over a year of something not feeling right in her abdomen. As it turns out, seven years prior, she had had a hernia and, you know, the hernia mesh is what caused the bowel obstruction. And herein lies the the disconnect because she does have a neurological condition which can affect bowel movement. And nobody thought to check the hernia mesh. And, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not in the medical field. I don't know how fast that stuff happens. But for her to be complaining about the way things felt down there for well over a year, someone should have taken notice. My dad takes care of her. They're living down in Florida. I don't know how many doctor's appointments they went to. For this. But after the emergency surgery, she ended up being in the hospital for an additional, I think it was 10 days. And I talked to her every day on the phone. She's down in Florida. I'm up in Ohio. And about the third day, she was starting to have more lucid conversations. And I thought, okay, you know, she's turned the corner. But then she seemed to take a a slide again and was extremely confused, hallucinating, couldn't hold a lucid conversation at all. And that's when I really started questioning my dad, who was down there with her. And I, I just asked him, what kind of pain meds do they have her on? And are they giving her her Parkinson's meds? You know, his answer was, I don't know what they're giving her. And no, she's not receiving her Parkinson's meds. So I'm pressing him to find out what they have her on. My sisters are calling the nurse's station, and we can't find out what's going on with my mom. Two of my sisters were making arrangements to fly down there, but that all takes time to coordinate because they both work full-time. And so we're relying on my dad And finally, around the seventh or eighth day, he told me that they had her on hydrocodone six times a day. And my mom at that point probably weighed about 100 pounds. And I was pretty much alarmed by that because, you know, I have had family members that have had surgeries and they were on nowhere near that kind of pain medication that far out from the surgery. And so luckily I have a friend who's an emergency room doctor and I called him and I just said, I just need somebody to run this by. I said, I'm not looking for a diagnosis. I said, but this seems like an awful lot of painkillers to be giving a hundred pound woman. And, you know, he confirmed my suspicion and he said it does sound like an awful lot. And uh, I just called my dad and I said, You need to take her off those painkillers and get her back on her Parkinson's meds. Because at that point in time, the only thing when she was awake, the only thing she was complaining about was neck pain because she was essentially passed out in bed most of the time. And she she never complained about her abdominal surgery at all.
0: Jill, I'm going to interrupt you again. Looking back, even do you have any idea why they kept her on that much medication that long? Is it because they felt like she was complaining of some kind of pain and they assumed it was the surgery as opposed to her neck, which is always going to be there because of her Parkinson's or you just, you just have no idea?
1: Yeah, I I have no idea. And I, I think at that point, the surgeon was out of the picture. You're talking about a hospitalist and then the nursing staff that was caring for her. She obviously wasn't doing well on the drugs because they they were causing her to hallucinate, which then caused her to want to try to take her IVs and stuff out. Right. So they would have to tie her down and put gloves on her, or they call them mittens. So you can't use your hands. And when they've done that for the third time, and this is, you're, you're now five, six days out from surgery, this isn't right. Right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Right. And if something had been truly wrong with my mom at that point, when my dad asked to have her taken off those pain meds, they would have said, no, she needs them for this. Right. But instead they discharged her within 24 hours.
0: Wow. Said, okay, take her home. Yeah. And so. It sounds like they may have been medicating, although maybe we shouldn't second guess, but.
1: No, I but. I, I don't know, but they were clearly over medicating her. Right.
0: Anyway. Okay. so continue, sorry.
1: We took her off the pain meds in the hospital. And within 24 hours, they released her. They did release her to a rehab facility. And she did well there. And she was recovering nicely. And at that point, my siblings, myself and my dad had made the decision that she would be much better off living in Ohio, which is where she spent the majority of her life. So my parents made the plans to move back. And so My mom was going to be in rehab for an extended period of time, not only because of her surgery, but when you layer that with Parkinson's disease, which is a mobility issue, she was a very high fall risk. And so she needed to be in a rehab facility until she regained her strength. And so we moved her from the rehab facility down in Florida to one up in Ohio. And when we did that again, it's just a story of over-medicating. Yeah, you know, she did see a neurologist in the facility up here. She did see the hospitalist, but they tripled her medications in some instances to the point where she, she wasn't sleeping at all. I don't know if that was a function of medication, if she became severely depressed and was manic. I, I don't know exactly what was going on. But when she wasn't on any kind of anxiety medication, but she was anxious in the hospital. So they put her on anxiety medication. That was three times a day. They took her depression medicine and increased it from one pill a day to three pills a day. And then on top of that, all of her Parkinson's meds. Anyway, she was getting to the point where she was going to be released. She wasn't sleeping at all at that point. They had somebody observing her. So we again asked for her to be released to our care, which she was, and she was out of the rehab for 24 hours and she fell and broke her arm. I wasn't probably three feet from her. She was using her walker at the time, you know, it happened in slow motion and I couldn't catch her. And then when she had her broken arm, Typical treatment is they put you in a soft cast to allow the tissue to swell, and that's fine, but when you're dealing with a patient with dementia, you can't put a cast on them and expect them to leave it on. And so that led to her having to have surgery. The bone had set perfectly in the soft cast, but because she ended up in the two-week period, took the cast off three times. I asked my dad simply, go get duct tape. And, you know, hindsight's 2020. 20, 20. I, I should have gone and got duct tape and put it on myself. And we probably would have avoided that second surgery. But everything's good now. We did take her to a neurologist up here in Ohio fairly quickly after she got released. And he was in agreement that we should go back to baseline of where she was before her obstructed bowel surgery happened and then address the symptoms one at a time as they came. So that's where we are. My mom is much better now. She's lucid. I would say minimal dementia symptoms, I guess, compared to most. I mean, it's I would call it mild dimensions, not right. severe. And then on top of her Parkinson's. So she does still need caregiving, but much better than she was.
0: Right. So this this sounds like a situation of, I mean, there's a lot going, there were several things going on with your mother and in in some ways she's probably in good care, but by not, for example, right, with the the complaining of the bowel issues for a long time, by not taking into account that there was this surgery seven years ago, by assuming whatever she's talking about is either a cause of the dementia or the medication, this was a big oversight and not realizing that, this was a bad bowel extraction going on. They got a lot worse than it probably needed to be. And then the situation of the cast. You got the typical treatment for this kind of a break. But if you take into account, well, her dementia and her mental state means that you probably don't want a removable cast on her. And because she took it off, she ultimately made it worse and had to have surgery. So there's just a lot of things going on where if, if more issues were taken into account, if the family probably was listened to a little bit better, different things like that maybe we would have had some better scenarios in some of the cases with care with your mother. Does that sound fair to you?
1: Yeah, that sounds fair. The other thing that I, I kind of wanted to add to all this is that even before all this obstructed bowel thing happened, when she was put on the generic of Aricept, she had marked symptoms of side effects of that drug And instead of saying, hey, it's this drug, they started treating her for low energy, like with vitamin B supplements and all this kind of stuff. It wasn't a fact of her being tired. It was a fact of, I'm washing dishes, I feel tired, I'm going to go sit down on the couch. And instead of taking a little nap, she passes out sitting straight up. And so that's not normal behavior. And as somebody who's not part of the medical field, when do you say, I don't think this med's working out for my parent? You know, my mom goes six months between seeing her neurologist and they'll tweak her meds. And unless my dad initiates a phone call with them, no one checks to see how she's doing on the adjusted meds. And you're leaving that decision to a 76-year-old man who may have a horrible night's sleep himself because his wife's not sleeping and is doing the daily caregiving routine and likely forgets things himself. I think that is a hole or a gap that needs to be addressed by the medical community or the insurance community as far as you know, this change has been made maybe we should check in.
0: (laughs) Right. So Jill, is part of what you're sharing that this was a case of the care being offered to your mother were not adequate and were not as good as they ought to be?
1: Right. And I think her recovery in the hospital was severely lacking and not having somebody there to question what was going on was a critical gap. I mean, you shouldn't have to have somebody there with you. But in every instance, when I've talked to different people, especially when you're talking about an elderly patient in the hospital who doesn't have full cognitive abilities, you have to have somebody there with them all the time. There's no way my mom should have been in the hospital for 10 days after that surgery. She should have been released probably at four or five days because she was completely healed and she healed well from her surgery. It was just the long-term effects of what happened to her because she was over-medicated in the hospital.
0: Right. Part of what you're talking about, when there's a loved one sitting there in the hospital, they can say to the caregivers, okay, this is not normal. This is not what this person is like. This is the reaction of whatever medication she's on. Can we try something different? If you just have your shift going through, And they don't know that about that person. They may be less likely perhaps to think, oh, we need a change in medication because they don't know what the norm is. That's where at least that's an example of situations where it's always helpful to have somebody there all the time (laughs) saying, okay, let's not do this. Let's try this. And not everyone is as well equipped at being that kind of an advocate that some patients sometimes need. Right. The topic today has been palliative care. We've been talking about that. This sounds like it's a situation where a palliative care team would be really useful. Most hospitals, if not all, even small hospitals have at least a palliative care person, if not a team in place. But if the family doesn't know to request it, it's not likely that you're going to receive the care. So that's one reason, just to educate people to know that there is such a thing as palliative care and it's a multidisciplinary approach. And when it works well, People come and they talk with the family, they talk about the history of the patient, they talk about all the issues that are going on at once, what are the needs and desires of the family, what's this patient been like over the past few years, and it increases, I guess you could say, increases the likelihood of making better medical decisions than when you're in a situation where a specialist might only be looking at his or her specialty, which may be very good at, but outside of the big picture, may not be making the best decisions for the patient. So this is where palliative care can come in. Did you know anything about palliative care when you were going through this? Or you just like, wow, well, if I knew then, maybe things would be different.
1: Yeah, I knew nothing about palliative care until probably six months after we went through what we went through with my mom, including the surgery, the arm break, everything. In fact, I came across it in a Google search. I was searching for something and palliative care came up.
0: Right. So have you since contacted a palliative care team at a hospital or, or did that's all pass and you're just not in a situation now where you need it right now?
1: Well, right now there are a lot of doctors and we're moving towards finding a palliative care doctor for my mom. She currently has a primary care physician and her neurologist, but I think we need somebody to tie everything together and possibly support my dad more, as far as his caregiving duties go. I mean, as far as making those medical decisions.
0: Right. And as we heard from others today, that's one of the great things that a palliative care team can do, can tie those things together, all those pieces about your, even your Catholic beliefs or your medical histories or the rest of the family, what it is that your goals are for the future. And all of those things can be taken into account when you're trying to make decisions about medication and surgeries and what pains are going on. That could really help family as well as the other medical personnel make better decisions for the family and for the patient. All right, Jill. Well, thanks for uh, thanks again for sharing uh, part of that story with what's going on with your with your mother and your and your father actually still. So part of what we're hearing right is a message of when you know medical situations arise, particularly as people get older, it can be a lot easier to go through those situations if you're more prepared for said situations you can prepare for those both and knowing what the, your loved one is going to want what kind of decisions could be made in advance while they're still completely mentally there what kind of financial decisions need to be made based on what you know might what happened i recently went through a situation with my own father and my father in law where particularly in my father in law's case where it would have been very helpful if we could, and it does, it's not that, in this case, it's not that we didn't try. (laughs) We did try, but he wasn't interested (laughs) in talking about these things in advance, and so we just had to face them when they happened. But anyway, so for starters, it sounds like you probably have some advice for people to encourage people, if you can, before something happens, right? We're all getting older every day. Nobody's not getting older. Everyone's getting older. And oftentimes, health things come with age, So what kinds of things do we need to ask our loved ones and prepare for so that we can be better equipped when they get to this stage when they need a lot of of end-of-life care or palliative care?
1: I think it would be good for people to discuss with their parents what they want their lives to look like. We're all so lucky to to live our lives out in a healthy manner. Um, That would be great, but that's not the case. Sometimes emergencies arise, and it's better to have a plan in place or at least an idea of what your parent wants instead of trying to fight fires. Do they have a will? What kind of means do they want to be kept alive if there is an emergency? And I think it's important, too, to have the discussion not only with one of the children, that all of the children in the family are aware of the parent's wishes, so that the person who ends up being there and needs to make decisions... Isn't held liable by their siblings for anything that happens. I really do think it's important to sit down and have a discussion with your parents. You know, dad's the primary caregiver. What if dad falls and breaks a hip or or dad has a heart attack? What would we do then? We've had the discussion of what happens if my dad goes first, but what happens if my dad needs caregiving too? That's something that We haven't really approached yet. We're all going to be together at Thanksgiving and, you know, we plan on having some family discussions based around what my parents want their next five to 10 years to look like. Do they want to stay here? Do they want to move into an assisted living facility where they could rent a cottage but have care available if they need it? There's all types of places that are being built around Dayton. I'm sure there are in Cincinnati as well. Would would that appeal to them, the social aspects of going into an assisted care facility? My parents have multiple friends that live in uh, St. Leonard's up here. They frequently attend some of the outings with their friends that go on at the facility. So a nursing home doesn't necessarily mean a brick and mortar building. Sometimes it means a campus that has cottages and more full-time care options if those are needed. And I think discussing them with your parents, even if they're completely against going into nursing homes, planting those seeds, having the care available, because I know a lot of elderly people grow fearful as they live on their own at home, whether it be afraid of falling or just afraid of something happening and nobody else being around. So, you know, those are things that families should discuss and everyone in the family should know about.
0: Right. And that's perhaps especially true when there are several siblings uh, that could be involved. Uh, I am aware of situations where there's several siblings going on, they didn't talk about in advance. Now you have to make a quick decision and and somebody has to make a decision and you make that decision and then when the other siblings get involved, they're like, How could you make that decision? You know, I mean that's if there's no time and somebody has to make a decision, it obviously would have been better if you would Thought about it in advance. This is what we're going to do if this happens. Right? That's always going to be the ideal situation. So, yes, yeah, so I highly encourage people to have as many of those kinds of conversations before such things happen. Thanks to everyone for talking with us today about the importance of palliative care, how anyone can get involved to improve the quality of life for so many people, and how it is bigger. It is, it is not only for hospice care, it's for all kinds of reasons that we've already been talking about today. So, thanks for being with us today
1: thanks for having me and I hope my story helped
0: and I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for tuning in on this episode of our being pro-life series head to the website and view all the links talked about in this episode at www.catholiccincinnati.org being-pro-life thank you again for joining us today and I look forward to being with you next time